This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Equity Minds. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you can. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. Um, we've got uh, a guest who is uh, a, you know, an incredible investor, uh, was actually ran uh, the best performing fund uh, in the world in 1997. Yes. Uh, but his life outside of investing is uh, more interesting and um, I, I think we're going to have a really, really great interview today. Yeah, very excited for this one and it is, it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Bill Browder to the show. Bill, welcome. Glad to be here. So for those of you who haven't uh, come across Bill before, uh, it's quite the resume, but we'll uh, list a couple here. He is the CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management, which at one time was the largest foreign portfolio investor in Russia, which we'll touch on a bit uh, in a bit. And uh, as Ren has said, in 1997 was the best performing fund in the world, up 238%. Pretty incredible. Bill was uh, the driving force behind the Magnitsky Act, a law to punish Russian human rights violators, which was signed into law by President Obama in 2012 and subsequently adopted by a number of governments around the world, including Canada in 2017 and the UK in 2018. And on top of all of that, he's the author of the best-selling book, Red Notice, How I Became Putin's Number One Enemy, which is certainly uh, one of my favorite books that I have uh, read quite recently, a phenomenal uh, a phenomenal sort of look into Bill's past. So, Bill, welcome. We're very excited for this. Great. So, Bill, uh, there's a lot we want to cover uh, in this interview, but we want to start with a little bit about you. And we do like to start all of our interviews uh, by hearing about people's very first investments. We generally find there's a good lesson or a good story that comes out of it. Uh, so to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Just a little bit about me to get to get to my first investment. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, I, w- I was um, uh, I'm the uh, grandson of the uh, head of the American Communist Party, and so um, when uh, when I was going through my teenage rebellion. I decided to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist, <laughs> and and I went to Stanford Business School, and, and graduated in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I, I said, if the, my grandfather was the biggest um, communist in America, and the Berlin Wall has come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. <laughs> and my very first job um, at a business school was working for the Boston Consulting Group, which was a uh, management consulting firm. And um, I, I, in London, and I said to them, "Listen, I'm, I I want to be your Eastern European guy." And, and for a while, there was nothing going on in Eastern Europe. And then one day, um, the the uh, partner 
knocked on my office door and said, hey, you were the guy who wanted to um, go to Eastern Europe. Well, um, now's your shot. And uh, they sent me out to a little town in Poland on the uh, six hours from Warsaw on the Ukrainian border where there was this bus factory. And uh, uh, the bus factory was basically uh, collapsing uh, in every possible way, financially, physically, et cetera. And, um, and BCG had been hired by the World Bank to go in and and advise them how to fix this failing bus factory. And they couldn't really afford the proper like team. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at this Polish bus factory, um, not knowing anything about buses or anything else. And um, I have this translator who, um, uh, who goes around with me everywhere. And so we, we were walking along the factory floor one day and I noticed that he's got this um, newspaper under his arm and what appears to be a bunch of financial statements on the front page of the newspaper. And so I, I, uh, I say to him, uh, his name is Leszek. I say, Leszek, what, what's that? And he said, ah, these are the very first privatizations in Poland. I thought, that's interesting. I, I'd like to know some more about that. So I said, so let, let's go to a conference room and, and I want you to explain to me what's, what's there. So he lays out the newspaper on the, um, on the boardroom table. And um, I said, what's, what's this number? He says, number of shares outstanding. And I say, okay, what's this number? He says, the price per share. I multiply the two numbers. That gets you to $80 million, which is the market cap of the company when they do the privatization. And they say, what's this number? And he says, net profit. I said, no, 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 go back and read it again. And uh, he says, net profit. I say, okay. Uh, that number was $160 million. <laughs> and so, um, so uh, I mean, you don't have to be a Stanford MBA or or some kind of like you know investment specialist to know that that if you can buy a company at half of one year's earnings, then all effectively all they have to do is stay in business for half a year, and you've already made your money back. And and uh, and and I, I didn't know anything about investing. I had never even it wasn't even a thing for me. And but I said to myself, well, isn't this what you go to business school for? Isn't this like what you're supposed to do if you're like an MBA and a you know guy in finance or whatever? And, um, and at the time I had a total, um, life savings of $2,000 and I had it all with me in Poland in traveler's checks in American express traveler's checks. Yeah. Uh, people don't use traveler's checks anymore, but this was, this was back then. And so I convert my traveler's checks to dollars and then I convert the dollars to Polish Zloty. And then I go down to the, um, post office with Leszek, my translator, and we subscribe to the very first privatizations. And, um, about a year later, um, uh, my two thousand dollars had turned into twenty thousand dollars, and um, uh, and I, what I can tell you is that that having a, your first investment be a ten bagger um, <laughs> is the um, is like the financial equivalent of crack cocaine, and you just want to keep on repeating the experience <laughs> over and over and over again. And 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 at that point, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, which was go around scouring Eastern Europe to pick up cheap privatizations, which is what I ended up doing. It is. Uh, it's quite the first uh, investment, I must admit. I don't think we've had anyone who's uh, had had quite that story. But, Bill, have you uh, managed to build your own personal investing philosophy, and how would you describe it? Well, I mean, in a certain way, um, what this experience did was totally ruin me as an investor. Because I mean, it, it made me as an investor, and it ruined me as an investor. Because when uh, so I, I discovered. You know that 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 company and 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 a few others were trading at some ridiculously low multiples of earnings, um, and then I ended up going to Russia, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, where I discovered that the same type of things. And so, what 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 basically I became is is a um, 
a value investor, but like a, a value investor of proportions of undervaluation that you've never seen before. And so my, my investment philosophy, and, and to this day, is, um, you know, I, the metrics have to work. I, you know, the stories don't matter as much as the metrics. If I can look at, you know, the the uh, valuation, uh, you know, half of one year's earnings or, or you know, the uh, 99% discount per barrel of oil reserves or whatever it is, you know, it's got to be some metric where I can feel comfortable that, that it's just, you know, undervalued and undervalued in a way that's measurable and clear. And it's interesting because that seems so straightforward to me. And, you know, I'm 57 years old. I've been in, in this business now for, for more than 30 years. And, and I've had a lot of, you know, young, medium aged people working with me and working for me and, and so on. And, and um, a lot of people don't, don't start out thinking that way. I mean, they, people, people approach investments from all sorts of different uh, uh, vantage points, but I always start out with the metrics. And, and even if I'm not a value, even if I'm not, I mean, th- th- this day and age, it's pretty hard to do value investing. But even if you're doing growth investing, the metrics have to like, you know, jump at you. The numbers have to jump at you. And, and uh, they did in Eastern Europe at the time for me. And that's what, what how I ended up uh, sort of running my investment life. So you went from uh, that Polish bus shelter to uh, co-founding and leading uh, Hermitage Capital Management. And I, I think I read that you told your initial investors at the time, we're either going to make a lot of money or we're going to lose everything. Um, so can you tell us, you know, what that what that process was of, uh, you know, uh, starting that fund, focusing on Russia and some of these post-Soviet economies? You know, we hear um, that it was, I guess, a bit of a wild west at the time. Um what was that like as a young investor starting your first fund? It was pretty unbelievable. <laughs> it was truly, <laughs> truly wild west, you know, sort of gold rush. So what happened was in um, in the when when Russia split from the Soviet Union, and um, the president of Russia at the time was a guy named Boris Yeltsin, and he wanted to go from communism to capitalism. And the way that he wanted to do that was to basically give all state property away for free. And so they created something called the voucher privatization program where they gave every person in the country a physical voucher. And those vouchers were then exchangeable for shares in all the Russian companies. And I, again, I did the math, <clears throat> pretty simple math that the um, there's 150 million people in the country, which meant there's 150 million vouchers. Um, the vouchers traded, they were freely tradable instruments that were about $20 each. And so $20 times 150 million gets you to 3 billion, which is the market cap of the voucher program. And those $3 billion worth of vouchers were exchangeable for 30% of the share capital of every single company in Russia, which meant that the market capitalization of the whole country was $10 billion. This is a country with 35% of the world's natural gas, 10% of the world's oil, 10% of the world's aluminum, 10% of the world's steel, electricity, car companies, insurance companies, telephone companies, everything, everything, $10 billion. You couldn't buy, I think at the time, it was like, one sixth the value. The, the entire country of Russia was one sixth the valuation of Walmart. Whoa! <laughs> so, so I mean, it, it was just crazy. The, the um, um, every they were effectively giving everything away for free. And so, the, the the real question was not, is it undervalued? The real question was, would they let you keep it? You know, would they would they would you buy it and then a, a year later the government changes and renationalizes it or whatever? Because if they didn't renationalize it, um, then you could make you know, just holding on to it, if, if it's trading at a 90, if an oil company is trading at a 99.7% discount and you hold it, you know, you make, you know, just, you know, you can make 10 times, 20 times, 30 times your money um, without any problem. And so I, I looked at this and I said, okay, I don't really know what the probabilities are one way or the other, but 
let's just assign a 50% probability that, that it doesn't work out and a 50% probability that, that, that they're not going to take it away from you, which means that you make 10 times your money. That, that means that, that the expected value of that investment minus you know, 50% times minus 100% plus 50% times 500% gets you to four, a 450% expected value of that particular investment on a probability weighted basis. And so I said to myself and I said to my clients, you know, you know, if you if you put like a half a percent of your portfolio with me and it goes up 10 times, then then, you know, that's a five percent return for your whole portfolio. And if it goes down to zero, you know, losing half a percent is not great, but it's not going to change your life. And, and that was the um, that was the advice and the and the sort of investment logic I shared with my clients. And and to be honest, not very few people signed up. Most I would say 19 out of 20 said, you know, Nice to meet you. Thank you very much. But but the people who did, um, did pretty well. So Bill, we read that while you were investing in Russia in the 90s, you were quite an activist investor. And, and for people who are unfamiliar with that term, it, you know, it means you're uh, actively speaking to companies and trying to get them to change, you know, what they're doing or, you know, um, different aspects of their business, which I imagine uh, is difficult at the best of times, but particularly difficult when you're talking to you know, post-Soviet oligarchs uh, in Russia. Um, what was that like, uh, being an activist investor in Russia in the 90s? So you have to understand that when, when they privatized all these companies, when the state transferred all of them uh, to private hands, it was kind of like they had built a house, but they hadn't thought about putting in plumbing and electricity. And so in the case of uh, Russian stock market, the plumbing electricity was uh, rule of law, and property rights. And so what would happen is you would buy a share of a company, but you really wouldn't own a share of anything because the, the oligarchs who owned or and controlled these companies um, were stealing all the money out the back door. And I mean, like really all the money out the back door. So you'd have these enormous companies that, you know, the size of BP or Exxon that were effectively had zero profit. And, and it, in, in, real, in economic terms, they didn't have real profit. I mean, they didn't have zero profit. But what happened was these guys would sell all the oil to their own trading company, you know, below market, and then and then the trading company would make all the profits between the price they paid and the real market price, and and they would also strip assets and do all sorts of crazy stuff. And so, uh, I was watching all this going on, and I said to myself, "This is really um, ugly and awful and and unprofitable." And and so I said, then I said, "Well, well, how do I stop it?" And and the answer is that in Russia, it wasn't like there was a um, a, a regulator who could stop it or the government agencies that would do something or the police or the prosecutor's office because they, they were all basically on the payroll of the oligarchs. So, but there was one thing that I could do and I, and I had the skills to do it, which is that I and my team were really good at research. We were good at researching stuff. And, and, um, and so we would research how they went about doing the stealing. We did something with, which I, that I have coined a term for it this we would do stealing analysis of, of Russian companies <laughs> and and then we would um, take the stealing analysis and and share it with um, uh, journalists international media the Financial Times Wall Street Journal etc and they loved us because we were doing a lot of the work for them and um, and and interestingly by, by researching the stealing and then exposing it it had an, it had a, a dramatic effect on the share price for one really, strange reason, which is that at the time that Vladimir Putin came to power, um, 
fighting with the same guys I was fighting with. The oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me. And, and I've never met Putin or even had a conversation with him, but there's this expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And so I would put out these big scandals about big Russian companies, uh, and these were people who were enemies of Putin's, and um, Putin would then step in and, and use whatever the, the power he had to um, make life difficult for them. And, and as a result, whenever he would step in, I would publicize something, he would step in and the share price would go up. And and so I had the best performing fund in the world in 1997 because of this. And, and um, in fact, uh, you know, if you had put your money in on day one, you'd make and, and took it out, uh, you know, 10 years later, you made some, you would have made something like uh, 30 times your money. Wow. Um, because it was just such a great um, investment uh, strategy for such a strange place. Before we move on, uh, we're just going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let's move forward then. So in the 2000s, you went from you know, a large foreign investor in Russia and just off the back of achieving a 238% return in 1997 to then the uh, number one enemy of uh, the Russian state. So can you tell us the backstory to this, uh, Bill, and how that actually happened? Well, so as you can imagine, um, exposing multi-billion dollar corruption is going to mess up and, and annoy a lot of people. And what happened was, that I was doing this for a while, and Putin was—it was helping Putin, but Putin wasn't interested in—in, in, uh, you know, he—he was—he wasn't interested in truth and honesty. He was interested in fighting with the oligarchs and winning his fight with the oligarchs. And so one day he decided he was going to go for broke and finally, once and for all, win his fight with the oligarchs by arresting the richest oligarch in the country, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos, and. Um, and he arrested him on his private jet in Siberia. He um, brought him back to Moscow. He put him on trial. And in Russia, when you go on trial, you sit in a cage. And he allowed the television cameras to come in and film the richest man in Russia on trial sitting in a cage. Now, imagine you're the 17th richest guy in Russia. Um, you're on your yacht. It's parked off the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, France. You finished up with your mistress in the bedroom. You wander out to the living room. You flick on CNN. And there before you is a guy far richer, far smarter, and far more powerful than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? You want to go back to Putin and say, what do I have to do to, to not sit in the cage? And that's what they did. And they all went to Putin. What do I have to do to not sit in the cage? And he said, um, 50%. Not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, but 50% for Vladimir Putin personally. And at that moment in time, he became the richest man in the world. And at that moment in time, the oligarchs went from being his enemies to being his business partners. And I was still going after the oligarchs, but now I wasn't going after, uh, you know, I, I was now hurting his own personal financial interests. And and, uh, and so what happened was um, in um, November of 2005, I was flying back to Russia from a, a weekend trip to London 
and I was um, stopped at the border. I was arrested. I was put in the airport detention center, and then I was deported back the next day to London and declared a threat to national security not to be allowed in Russia after that. And then, then the real trouble began. My, then my offices were raided in Moscow. They seized all of my documents. They raided my law firm, the law firm office that I used. They seized all of my documents there. And then the documents were used in a complex scam where they ended up stealing, where a bunch of police officers working together with corrupt officials stole $230 million of taxes that my firm paid to the Russian government, from the Russian government. And um, this was the point where I hired a really bright young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to help me investigate and stop what was going on. And Sergei, he figured out the whole tax scam. He wrote criminal complaints for me to every different law enforcement agency in Russia. He went and testified against the officials involved. And in retaliation, he was subsequently arrested by the same officials he testified against, put in pretrial detention, where they then tortured him for 358 days and ultimately killed him on November 16th, 2009, at the age of 37. Mm, it's it's an incredibly sad story. And Sergei's name lives on um, partly through the lobbying work that you've led. Um, some, some people who are listening may be familiar with the Magnitsky Act. Um, but for those that aren't, can you tell us um, what, what the Magnitsky Act does and uh, what was the process that you sort of followed behind the scenes to lobby governments to uh, get firstly the US and then other governments around the world to adopt uh, their own versions of the Magnitsky Act? After I got the news of Sergei's murder the next morning after he was killed, for me, it was like the most horrifying, traumatic, soul-destroying news I could have ever gotten. He, he was effectively killed because he was my lawyer. If he hadn't been working for me, he'd still be alive today. And I made a vow on that day to his memory, to his family, and to myself that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing, stop doing business, and devote all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energies to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And um, that's what I've been doing for the last 11 years. And at first, I thought that, that we would be able to get justice inside of Russia. Sergei had done something very unusual, which is he wrote down everything that happened in his 358 days in detention, he wrote 450 complaints documenting all of the abuse and mistreatment, and he was tortured in all sorts of terrible ways. And once a month or so, he would take a hand a stack of these um, complaints to his lawyer. His lawyer would file them. The Russian authorities ignored them. But we got copies. And from these copies, we were able to construct the most granular, well-documented, detailed um, account of human rights abuse that's come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And because of that, we expected some measure of justice inside of Russia. But it didn't happen. The Russian authorities circled the wagons. Vladimir Putin personally got involved in the cover-up. And um, they gave promotions and state honors to some of the people most complicit. And it became obvious to me that, that um, we were never going to get justice in Russia. And so I then said, well, then we need to get justice outside of Russia. And that's when I came up with this idea. And, and it's interesting because... Um, I'm not, a hum I'm not a lawyer or a human rights activist. I'm a hedge fund manager. But being a hedge fund manager allowed me to have an idea that was different than any other, than, than an idea that, that a lawyer or a human rights activist would have, which is that I, I know who these people were and I knew how they operated as a business person. And they, they did all this stuff for money. 
And I know how these people operate with their money. They don't keep their money in Russia because it's it's too dangerous to keep their money in Russia. They keep their money in, in Swiss banks and British banks. They buy uh, properties in the south of France. They send their kids to boarding school in, in England and Switzerland. They, they send their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan. And so it became obvious to me that, that you know, we, maybe we couldn't prosecute them in the West for these terrible crimes, but we can certainly not let them um, travel to the West or spend their money or, you, or invest in the West. And, uh, and so I went to Washington after Sergei was killed, and I met two senators, a, a Democrat from Maryland named Benjamin Cardin and a Republican from Arizona that everyone's, ever, everyone's heard of, um, the late Senator John McCain. And um, I said, I told them the story that I've just shared with you. And I said, can we freeze their assets and ban their visas? And these two senators said, yes. And that became known as the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act really took off and it passed 92 to four in the Senate. It passed with 89% of the House of Representatives. And it was signed into law by um, President Obama on the 14th of December, um, 2012. And the moment it was signed into law, Putin went out of his mind. He was so angry. Uh, he was so angry because this potentially put his vast fortune at risk. And he made it his single largest foreign policy priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And he even lashed out at Americans by banning American adoptions of Russian orphans, which is just the most hideous thing one could do since most of these orphans were sick and their lives were being saved by American families. And, and he, he thought that that like lashing out like this would make, would make the senators think twice and maybe think about repealing the act or something. But in fact, it, it, his, his, his um, apoplectic reaction had just the opposite effect. And these two senators said, well, wait a second. If Putin is so upset by this, there's a lot of other bad guys and dictators around the world who would be, who, who would be equally upset and, and should be targeted as well. And that became known as the Global Magnitsky Act. And so the Global Magnitsky Act went after people doing similar things everywhere in the world. And it was passed in, in December of 2016. Following from that, um, I traveled to Canada and uh, the Canadian Parliament unanimously passed the Canadian Magnitsky Act in, in uh, October of 2017, followed by the Lithuanian Parliament, followed by the um, Estonian and Latvian Parliament. And then the British Parliament passed the Magnitsky Act in 2018 after the um, Salisbury Novichok uh, poisoning of the Skripals. And then uh, at the end of last year, uh, the European Union passed the European Union Magnitsky Act. And so we now have 31 countries with Magnitsky Acts. And one of the big outliers that, that I think is on deck is Australia. Australia, um, the Australian Parliament had a full one-year public inquiry into an Australian Magnitsky Act. Um, the, it was unanimous recommendation from this committee in Parliament to the government to do it. And now we're just sitting and waiting to, to see what, when, when, if and when the government's going to act. So just on that, Bill, um, it, is, it is pretty fascinating that uh, we have had that recommendation from the Australian Parliamentary Committee, yet uh, the government is yet to act on that recommendation. What would you tell uh, Scott Morrison and the Australian government uh, in terms of adopting this Magnitsky Act? Well, I think that the most obvious thing that happened was that um, the Magnitsky Act was used very recently um, to go after the Chinese officials who were most complicit in the uh, concentration camps against the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang. And as you know, there's a massive genocide taking place. The Chinese basically want to wipe an entire ethnic group off the map. 
kind of similar to what the um, Nazis were doing in Germany. And, um, and everybody is shocked by it all over the world. And what happened was that the EU, the US, UK, and Canada, um, and so there was 30, 30 countries in total in this group, sanctioned um, the Chinese officials involved. And, and, and the best Australia could do was, was um, make an announcement saying, we support what everyone else is doing. <laughs> And it really, I, I have to say, when I saw that announcement, I thought that, that, that is just the most weak. I mean, just it was just humiliating for, for Australia to be in that position where Australia couldn't join the rest of the civilized world in taking action. And I, I wouldn't be proud to have seen that as an Australian. And I think Australia should join up with the rest of the world and do what's right. Um, moreover, by not having a Magnitsky Act, the, um, the Australian government is basically creating an, a a massive incentive program for for uh, for human rights abusers and kleptocrats to keep their money in Australia because it's the one place that's safe. If everyone else is basically um, creating a, a hostile environment for for these bad guys. Yeah, I think um, that's definitely gonna make Bryce and I reflect on on being Australians. Uh, <laughs> get your act together, ScoMo, and get that passed. I guess uh, while we're in the in the frame of asking you what you would say to different governments around the world, um, if if you had a chance to speak to Vladimir Putin, um, you know, after being his number one enemy, after he's tried to arrest you so many times, after everything that's happened, um, what would you say to Putin? I got nothing to say to Vladimir Putin. I got nothing to say to him at all. It's pure. Um, I only want one thing, which is for him to um, uh, give up power. And go to jail and face face uh, justice for the crimes that he's committed. Mm. So recently, the U.S. Russian relationship has been characterized by low level cyber intrusions, allegations of election interference, and a weird bromance between uh, Mr. Trump and Putin. But with Biden back in power now, what do you think the future holds for this U.S. Russian relationship? I don't think anything good for Putin. Biden has made it clear right from the from the get go. He said he he said very clearly that um, Putin is a killer. Um, he's imposed sanctions recently, and uh, and he's not um, he's not going to be pushed around in the way that Trump. Uh, well, Trump wasn't pushed around. Trump was voluntarily pushing himself around on behalf of Putin. But even before Trump, Obama um, really didn't. He 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 was trying to sort of reset relations with Russia. He thought he could somehow appease Putin. And so I think that this is probably going to be one of the darkest times for Putin because um, the United States has really kind of drawn a line. And a lot of the stuff that Putin could get away with in the past, he won't be able to get away with with Biden. There is one sort of very frustrating intermediate part of this whole situation, though, which is that in Europe, there's a number of countries that really don't understand um, uh, that it's uh, not in their interest to appease Putin. And just for example, the German foreign minister a couple days ago um, said, you know, maybe we should try dialogue instead of sanctions. And um, that sounds all very reason reasonable, <laughs> except in a situation for 20 years, everyone tried that and Putin has just been blowing up planes out of the sky, invading foreign countries, poisoning dissidents, and so on and so forth. And, and dialogue doesn't work with a criminal like him. Bill, it's um, it's it's pretty incredible the work that you've done. Um, so I think you know you you should 
be proud and you know we're pretty proud to speak to you about it we're gonna we're gonna try and do a hard pivot now back to investing <laughs> which um which i don't think we have the skills to pull off but we'll give it a try um but i think you know if people want to hear more about your story and also this story about uh sergey magnitsky and um you know i guess putin um we can't recommend more uh picking up your book red notice it's it's a uh, it's a fascinating read mm. and it's a, it's a really important story that you're telling and that you're continuing to fight on. Mm. Thank you. All right, now I'm going to try and now I'm going to try and do the hard pivot back to <laughs> investing. <laughs> so obviously now most of your time is taken up with this fight um, and you know lobbying governments around the world, including Australia. Come on, Australia, get your act together. Are you investing uh, today and are you paying much attention to financial markets in 2021? Um, I, I, I no longer manage other people's money, but I do invest my own money. And um, uh, I've, I've gone from being an uh, in, investor in public equities in emerging markets um, now to being a, um, uh, an investor only in developed markets um, with the rule of law and generally in private companies as opposed to public companies. And so my whole sort of modus operandi has shifted and I'm no longer a value investor because I, I think there's not much value left out of there out there. And so I'm now, you know, like like almost everybody else, understanding the world is being disrupted by different technologies and and um, trying to find ways of be, you know picking the beneficiaries of the disruption and avoiding the um, the victims of it. What are some of the key, I guess, areas or thematics that you're investing in at the moment in the private sector that are capturing your interest? Um, if it's in that sort of growth sector or stage of the business yeah what what's what are you excited about i'm excited about anything where um you know you where 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 one can bring uh technology to improve efficiency in 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 any industry and uh and and that's and generally um um, it's interesting because i'm not looking for people in my generation i'm looking for young people to invest with because people my generation just you know we're not hardwired to um to see the opportunities I have a son um, who's 25 who um, uh, who uh, went to Stanford and then uh, started a company to replace lawyers with artificial intelligence. His name is Josh Browder. His company is called Do Not Pay. And all of a sudden, he you know he went from a standing start to having this enormous business with you know a huge number of users, where there he's now trying to put lawyers out of business. And uh, and I meet his friends, and they're all doing amazing things in all sorts of different areas. And so. You know, really, I'm I'm focused on you know young disruptors who can um, who are going to change the world, and it's a totally different mindset and a different investment style than anything I did before. And and it's uh, uh, it almost feels unnatural to do what I'm doing, but I, but I, it it feels like the right thing at the same time. I I've heard of Do Not Pay. I I didn't realize it was founded by by your son, but that that was started to like automatically contest parking tickets. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, <laughs> And, but now it does 200 different things, but it's, it's a remarkable story. And, and, uh, you know, he's, he really, he's, he's just ripping the cover off the ball. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I mean, Bryce should be a little bit nervous. His partner's a lawyer. So, um, yeah, true. Hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill, um, you, you know, emerging markets for the equity mates community is a, is a really big, uh, I guess area of interest. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's incredibly hard to invest in those spaces for a lot of the reasons that you just touched on, you know, uh, le- less regulation, less, um, 
adherence to rule of law and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, as your experience in post-Soviet Russia exemplifies that there are some incredible opportunities um, if you can navigate those markets effectively. When you look around the world today, uh, do you see any emerging markets that you think display similar characteristics to that post-Soviet Russia in the 1990s? I do not. I don't think that anything will ever compare to the crazy, you know, sort of mismanaged privatization program that created those opportunities. Uh, Having said that, I think that we're going through such a world of cataclysm with COVID and global warming and alternative energy and so on, that there's going to be so many dramatic winners and losers in the future in, um, in other areas. But it's not going to be so obvious as a 99.9% discount that we saw in Russia. You're going to have to do, be doing a lot of homework and you're going to have to like have a view and take that view and live with that view. And it's, uh, it's definitely not going to be so obvious and in your face as things are or things were when I was doing Russia. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you ever do find any uh, companies with 99% discounts, make, <laughs> yeah. make sure you let us know about them. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting because I was telling everybody in Russia about Russia back at the time. And like, as I said, 90, 19 out of 20 people didn't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet they're kicking themselves now. So, Bill, um, we have almost reached the end of our time. We do like to end these interviews with the uh, same final three questions. But before we do, um, we want to firstly say a massive thank you for joining us. Um, and then secondly, aside from uh, buying your book, uh, Red Notice... Is there anywhere, um, if people want to find out more about you or follow you online, is there anywhere in particular they should be going? Um, probably the best thing to do is to follow me on Twitter, at Bill Browder. Um, I'm active. I'm, I'm commenting on lots of things. I'm announcing lots of things. And, and uh, um, I've got lots of things to say there. And uh, I'm just finishing my second book, uh, which won't be out until probably early next year. It's um, almost fully written called Freezing Order, which will bring everybody up to date from when red notice was um red notice stopped in around 2012 the story and this one will bring us right back to to where we are today great so first of the final three questions um do you have any books that you consider must reads oh so i've got so many books that that are considered must reads there's a book that that i had an opportunity to read ahead of time before it gets being published it's called red roulette um, and it's it's written by a guy that I met who um, who basically uh, lifts the hood on Chinese corruption, and um, uh, and it's he, he was a, he was like busy doing wheeling and dealing in China, and, and it lifts the, the the lid on the whole thing, and it tells from an insider what it's like to be a, a businessman investor in China and who's doing what to whom. And I thought that was really it's it's coming out soon. Red Roulette, another one which I thought was just shocking and hilarious um was uh, a book called the billion dollar whale about that the uh, one mdb scandal really well written really funny and just amazing what it just shows how all the institutions got completely hoodwinked by this guy joe Lowe. those are the two the two sort of ones that would be most relevant to to you guys and your audience fascinating yeah. story yeah. billion dollar whale that that blew my mind that yeah. story just how you can they get still away haven't with busted that. him yeah yeah, yeah. Still out there. So uh, the next question is, uh, in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? 
Well, I have to say my son's company do not pay. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners at this point uh, have Googled do not pay and are seeing if they can get him to contest their and parking all, tickets. And all uh, graduate lawyers are also Googling uh, new jobs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then final question, Bill. Um, if you think back to you know the early days in your career when you were at Stanford or when you were in that Polish bus factory, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Or knowing then what I know now, um, I would have stopped in Poland and never gone to Russia because the, um, uh, the, the, the most terrible things happened. You know, we, we've lost the life of a young man. Uh, you know, the Russian government has been pursuing his family, pursuing me and pursuing everyone around me. I could have had just as good a life if I had st- stayed in California and focused on technology instead of Russia. And so for me, the, the uh, uh, staying away from Russia would have been the be- best thing. And I advise you and all your listeners, um, no matter what anyone says, don't invest in Russia now. Good uh, good advice to finish on. No intentions to invest in Russia on my side. So, um, Bill, we will have to leave it there, but it's been uh, a truly fascinating conversation, as we said at the start. You know, you've done some pretty amazing work and, and uh, the efforts that you're you're doing to still lobby for the Magnitsky Act around the world is impressive. We would love to uh, invite you or are looking forward to inviting you to Australia when the the Australian government passed the Magnitsky Act here uh, and doing a follow-up interview in person. That would be uh, an an absolute pleasure. But um, again, thank you for your time. Um, We know that our audience would have got a lot out of that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.